So let's just pray for him together. Lord, I thank you for Dan. I thank you for the fact that he's not just one of your servants, but he's one of your sons. And I pray that he would enjoy and walk in his sonship this morning. And Lord, that he would also enjoy being a servant of the Most High God. So bless him this morning, Lord. You have placed a sword on him, a sword on his thigh for the cause of righteousness. Help him to use it well this morning, to rightly divide the word of truth, um, to love people like Jesus did. I thank you for the first service and the anointing that was there. Bless him, anoint him, fill him. Help him to feel the big embrace of the Father this morning as he speaks and he gives forth your word and your truth and your grace and your goodness. Bless Dan and bless all of us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. So yeah, that title of uh, Sexpert, just the, the, the awkwardness and even creepiness of that just went up exponentially from the first service because my wife and my three kids and my parents are here. Um, <laughs> so my wife, when she heard that, she probably laughed out loud. My kids are probably, as young adults, wanting to crawl into their seats and are just dismayed that that would even be said, and I have no idea what my parents are thinking. <laughs> so we'll just let that, let that alone. But it is good to be here. I've really appreciated yesterday I had the opportunity to present a bit of a seminar and interact with people about how to have uh, grace-filled conversations, redemptive conversations surrounding the areas of sexuality, and particularly uh, as we interact and relate with people who are experiencing same-sex attraction or uh, are uh, living from a gay identity or a lesbian identity or something along those lines. And so that was good, and today has been uh, outstanding as well. And with this being the fourth Sunday in the series, Designer Sexuality, I kind of feel like I'm batting cleanup. Uh, the bases are loaded, and uh, I'm really not feeling pressure to, you know, jack one out of the park or at least get a single. I guess if we can at least get a bunt and to get the person on third base home, that'll be, that'll be a great thing. But ultimately, uh, it's not about the person swinging the bat, but it's about the Holy Spirit taking what is said this morning and applying it to each of our hearts. And uh, I think it'll be a great thing uh, it's not unusual when someone speaks in a, in a church context for others to reflect on what they heard, and there's sometimes things that people hear that I, as the speaker, don't recall saying, which is evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work in the midst of that. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. In a, in a few moments, we'll be reading verses 36 through 50, and also uh, the passage will be, will be up on the screen. But I want you to just think for a moment, have you ever had the experience of walking into a room, and the moment you walked in the room, you knew all the eyes of everyone in the room were zeroed in on you? Uh, The awkwardness, the anxiety that that could produce, the stress. Some situations you might have experienced mild embarrassment. I can think of a scenario, this may have happened, I, I can't recall specifically, But in college or grad school, walking into a classroom, sitting down, opening up my books, getting ready to go, and realizing I'm in the wrong class. And that moment, it's kind of like the walk-up shame. You know, you close your books up and you walk out and everybody kind of laughs at you. I don't know if you know that experience or not. But shame is a a powerful thing. It can be a very powerful thing in our lives. And I like what Brene Brown says about it in The Gifts of Imperfection. She says, shame works like the zoom lens on a camera. When we are feeling shame, the camera is zoomed in tight, and all we see is our flawed selves, alone and struggling. And this woman that we'll read about in this story, 
was identified only by the fact that she was known to have lived a sinful life. Certainly, she had not been invited to this dinner by the Pharisees, but that didn't matter to her. She entered the room with one thought on her mind, and no one, not their thoughts, not their shaming glances, not their condescending looks, not the whispering, was going to stop her from saying what she had come to say or doing, more specifically, what she had come to do. And something we'll also observe in this passage is that she had no shame. Now, when we use that expression of saying someone had no shame, a lot of times what we're saying is they don't give a rip about what others think about them. They just do what they do, they say what they say, and they don't care. But this is not the kind of no shame that she had. The no shame that she had was that she was not feeling small or not feeling insignificant in front of these religious leaders. So let's read together Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It says, And one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed a money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and Simon and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you were to take a quick read through the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, there's something you're going to see there. You're going to see that Jesus was particularly fond of the people that the religious leaders had no time for. Jesus was drawn to the spiritual, social, economic, and cultural outcasts. But not only was Jesus fond of them, they were very fond of him as well. One writer puts it this way, Jesus was drawn to the outcasts. The people of the land who were good enough, clean enough, wealthy enough, or pure enough to be a part of the establishment. He's invited to dine with the elite and the rich, which he does numerous times. But he also eats with the lowest of the low, and he enjoys it. He enjoys them. He touches people with infectious skin diseases. He lets questionable women touch him. He lays his hands on dead bodies, and he engages in conversation with a promiscuous woman in the middle of the day. 
His entire life is about stripping away power and control. Jesus always chooses the path of love and not power. He chooses inclusion and not exclusion. He chooses connection and solidarity rather than rank and hierarchy. Touch rather than distance. Compassion rather than control. He comes riding on a donkey, not a horse. He comes weeping and broken, not proud and triumphant. Jesus is not like the Pharisees. He is not like the religious rulers of his day. The Pharisees focused on the sinful past of this woman, and in doing so, they completely missed out on her humanity. They completely missed out on the fact that she was created in the image of God. But Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't deny the reality of her sin, but rather than focus on her past, he sees how her heart has been transformed and how this transformation is demonstrated in her act of love, of deep affection for Jesus. Have you ever stopped and asked the question, who ought I to love? Or who should I be identifying with? Or even as a church community, who ought we to love? Who ought we to be identifying with? It's been, a, it's been a privilege to be able to interact with the leadership of the church, with the pastoral staff and the ministry team in preparing for today. And I've even had times and opportunities in the past to interact with, with both Rick and Joel in, in earlier years of ministry. And I think it's pretty safe to say that this church is a safe church. It's a safe place. It's a safe place to say things like, I'm an addict. I want to get free, but I don't know how. Is there anyone here who knows what I'm going through? Can someone help, take, help me take the next step without shaming me or just telling me I need to trust God more? My finances are a mess. I can't see any way out. My situation feels hopeless. I did it again. I looked at porn. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to stop. Filters, accountabilities, reading my Bible, praying more, nothing seems to work. My marriage is a mess. Sure, we look good at church, and no one would ever suspect that we're living separate lives while we're living under the same roof. I seem to derive pleasure and gratification from gossiping about others. What's the matter with me? I'm gay. I'm not sure what this means for me, my relationships with family and friends, and ultimately whether or not God still loves me. I feel so alone. Is there anyone who cares, or will I be judged and condemned? Whether we recognize it or not, we have something in common with this woman. We have something in common with this woman, and as she anointed Jesus with that perfume and washed his feet with her tears and kissed them, we also, just as her, we have a sinful life. We are flawed and broken, and we are disoriented. And just as her demonstration of love indicated that something had changed inside of her as a result of her encounter with Jesus, so also we can encounter Jesus in such a way that reorients our lives. In this last talk in the Designer Sexuality series, we're going to talk about how God, through Jesus Christ, seeks to reorient each of us. He seeks to transform our disoriented sexuality And in doing so, that will change the way we see ourselves and the way we will see others. So the first point is that we are all disoriented. We are broken and flawed beings. 
We're all disoriented. Not one of us escapes this. It's important to remember that all of our sexual life has been impacted by the fall. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve buying into the lie that they could be like God. Prior to taking that fruit and eating it, Adam and Eve experienced perfect intimacy. We have no idea what this is like. That experience that is that is summarized in that statement that they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide from one another, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, nothing. But now as a result of sin, the best they could hope for and the best that we can hope for is real intimacy. Now, real intimacy is something that we can experience whether we're married or not, that that experience of being known and, and understood. But in the context of marriage, the relationship between a man and a woman, the self-doubt and fear and disappointment are all experienced. That's part of real intimacy. But they are faced and they are talked about. They are not ignored. And that actually has the effect of increasing relational and sexual intimacy. But so often we don't choose to go the route of real intimacy, but instead we choose false intimacy. And false intimacy is essentially this self-created illusion that we turn to that helps us to avoid the pain that's inherent in real intimacy. So we turn to false intimacy. We turn to fantasy as a means of escaping the pain that is connected with real and true intimacy. And so the consequences of sin are felt on every level of our sexuality. We experience it in our bodies, in the distortions of gender and how we experience what it means to be male or female. And it also impacts the way we relate to one another. In the church, we've tended to focus on sexual sins that revolve what we, around what we do or don't do with our bodies. And we ignore the, what can actually be the more damaging social kinds of sins. We focus on internet filters and accountability for people who struggle with pornography. But what about the social porn? And that's, that's how Deb Hirsch in her book, Redeeming uh, Sex, how, how she phrases that. She talks about social porn the kind of things that take us off in another direction. And she speaks of magazines and publications and websites and advertisements for women and for teenagers uh, alike that define what beauty is. Or, and uh, this is always a point of contention in our home, I always talk about the Disney princess movies and what they communicate to our young daughters. Um, And so... Sorry, getting a, a response that I was picking up from my wife, and I, which I was anticipating. Um, but what gets communicated? You know, someday my prince will come, my prince will come and take me away, and I'll live happily ever after. I don't know anyone who lives happily ever after. Each of us struggles in some way with our sexuality, whether we experience heterosexual or homosexual orientation. I remember a number of years ago counseling with a man who told me, he said, I wish my struggle was with heterosexual pornography and not homosexual pornography. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, if it was with heterosexual pornography, I'd only have one sin against me. And at that moment, I kept the counselor look, where if you know a counselor or have ever been in counseling, you know what that is, with not showing too much specific emotion. But inside, I was feeling angry and I was feeling sad. I was angry that this message that he had received Uh, that he'd been told that somehow homosexual sin is worse than heterosexual sin. And I was saddened by the fact that he'd been living his life under this load of guilt and shame. Every one of us 
Every one of us is sexually broken. Gathered here and also gathered there, Good Hope Road, and well beyond that, all of our orientation is disoriented. And at the same time, all of us are on a journey towards wholeness. We're on a journey towards reorientation. Not one of us can say, this doesn't apply to me. Secondly, God has created us with legitimate desires. He has created us with legitimate desires. Mark and Deb Lazer in their book, The Seven Desires, put it this way. God put the seven desires deep inside our souls for good reasons. When we understand our desires and realize that they are the same for everyone, we can live in deeper and more meaningful community. Finding our commonalities draws us towards one another. Giving and receiving these desires allows us to connect with others in truly intimate ways. Understanding our desires also helps us discover our true need for God. He is the only one who can truly satisfy our desires at the deepest level of our souls. So just very briefly, what are these seven desires? Well, the first one there is to be heard and understood. And maybe you've experienced the opposite side of this. Have you ever had the experience of talking to someone and you can tell by the blank look on their face that they have no idea what you're talking about? Well, that's the opposite of what it means to be heard and understood. To be heard and understood is to share and to interact and to know that this person gets you. Then there's the desire to be blessed. And the desire to be blessed has nothing to do with performance or accomplishment or success. It's just simply because we are. It's the, the parent being able to say a child, to a child, I love you just because. Or a husband to a wife being able to do the same thing. Or a friend to another friend. Then there's also the desire to be affirmed. And this ties in more to our performance. It's that approval that we receive. Someone saying, good job, thank you. I appreciate it. You did that so well. Then there's the desire to be touched. To be touched both sexually and non-sexually. We all need physical contact. We all need to be hugged. We all need to know that we have value and that value is so often communicated in that touch. There's a desire to be safe, to be safe emotionally, to be safe in our relationships, to be safe physically, and to be safe spiritually as well. Then there's a desire to be chosen, and that's to have one person or several people in our life who would say, I choose you. I could choose anyone else, but in this moment, I choose you. And then finally, the desire to be included. And this steps back and is a little bit broader than being chosen. But in the same, in the same way, it's to be a part of a larger group. A larger group who, when they're getting together, when they're hanging out, they're saying, hey, let's give, you know, whatever your name is a call. Let's have this person be a part of what we're doing. And Ideally, that's one of the things that the church provides. And I like what Pastor Joel was saying about you've got the the big room, but then you've got the small room and the medium room. Finding those other smaller places where you can be included, where you can be a part of something that is more significant than what you could be a part of by yourself. So these desires are legitimate and are present within each of us, whether we're experiencing heterosexual or homosexual orientation. And how different... How different could things be if we didn't label or identify one another by our attractions, our orientations, and instead we came together as a common group experiencing our God-given legitimate desires? Deb Hirsch, in her book, Redeeming Sex, has written the following. 
She said, I remember reading a survey that was taken among members of the LGBT community in San Francisco. They were asked a series of questions about what the factors were that kept them actively involved in their own community. The top two answers were acceptance and belonging. Acceptance because they were a part of a group and they were not judged, they were not ridiculed for being different. Belonging because many had experienced rejection from their families and even their church communities. So the LGBT community had quite literally become their new home. And for those of us who do not experience attraction or orientation to the same gender, do we not also desire to be accepted and to belong? And when we think about how Jesus interacted with people in his day, he welcomed people before addressing their behaviors or their beliefs. It was in his welcoming, it was in the experience of belonging that he invited people into a transforming relationship. God has created all of us with legitimate desires, and he intends for us to have those desires met in relationship with one another, but ultimately in relationship with him. Third, there's great complexity. There's great complexity due to our disoriented sexuality, and we all walk with a limp. We all walk with a limp as it relates to our sexuality. Theologian Marva Dawn has introduced two essential desires or longings that are intended to capture all of our sexual and relational needs. She talks about social sexuality and a sexuality that's more physical or more sexual, as we often think about that term, uh, in nature. And it'd be helpful for us to think about sexuality this way, as the longing to be completed in another or to connect with another. So it's this longing to connect, this longing to experience completion. Social sexuality actually makes up all of our relationships with family, friends, work colleagues, people at church, all of our social networks. Now we experience each of those relationships differently. Some are more intimate and vulnerable than others. We also experience different degrees of completion or connection within those relationships. Hopefully you're experiencing a deeper level of completion or connection with family and friends that you are, than you are at work. That would be, be something hopeful. Now more of the physical sexuality side of things has to do with that physical connection and that longing. It can range from the actual physical act of sex to that initial intoxication of romance and love. There is a nakedness experience that's definitely physical, but there's also an emotional and spiritual nakedness and vulnerability that we experience. Now, while genital or uh, social or sexual sexuality, physical sexuality can be experienced alone, God created it to be expressed relationally with another in the context of the covenantal union between a man and woman. And here's where it actually gets complex. If you don't think it's complex already, it gets more complex here. When we think about social and physical sexuality, these are things that are not so easily distinguished in life. Many times we confuse sex with intimacy, thinking, if I have sex, I'm experiencing intimacy. But that's not necessarily the case. And that's so often where we find ourselves getting tripped up or getting caught, thinking that if I'm engaging in sex, or even if I'm engaging in fantasy, whether maybe through pornography or literature, then somehow I'm experiencing intimacy but that's not accurate. We all limp. We all limp as it relates to our sexuality because we so often expect and demand more 
than what God ever intended. And this limp may actually be with us as long as we live. We may not get totally free from that. There's good news in all this, even within the midst of the complexity. The good news that all of us are on a journey toward wholeness. No one is excluded. And I can't help but wonder if, whether we're, whether we're aware of it or not, that we are on that journey, that God is drawing us. He's inviting us to respond to him and to follow. And so where this great, there is this great complexity, where we limp, we also find hope. We find hope for transformation. We find hope for healing. And this healing is about reorienting our hearts to our creator. This hope is about healing. It's about uh, reorienting our hearts to our creator and not focusing on our behavior. In the first pages of her book, Redeeming Sex, uh, Deb Hurst shares about the pastor of a small church in the community where she lived. It was, it was called Christian Chapel. And she and her friend, Mark, kind of stumbled into this church on a Wednesday night. And this pastor, he looked every bit the, the conservative pastor with the dress pants, the sports coat, white shirt, and the, the tie that he would wear all the time. And Pastor Pat, his name was Pat, Pastor Pat would come to their home and Mark and Deb shared their, share their home with a rather eclectic group of friends who were just as outlandish as Pat was conservative. And as Pat would leave a Bible, lead a Bible study at the table in the kitchen, it was highly likely that drugs were being bought and sold in the living room and that on the second floor there were two men in bed with one another. But Pat didn't judge, condemn, or tell them where he stood on their behaviors. And Hirsch puts it this way. He never once took a moralistic, tongue-clucking approach with us. He knew God was at work in us, and he didn't want to mess with that. He knew the Holy Spirit would eventually sort things out. And despite how he might have personally felt about our crazy lifestyles and wild household, he remained true. And there's that one statement in there that just jumps out at me. He knew God was at work in us, and he didn't want to mess with that. He knew the Holy Spirit would eventually sort things out. And so what would it look like in our relationships? In our relationships, in the midst of our disoriented sexuality, if we would trust God, if we would trust the Holy Spirit to do what only God and the Holy Spirit can do, rather than sometimes put our hands into things and actually potentially mess things up. True behavioral change is always preceded by the reorienting of our hearts. This woman who lavished Jesus with these demonstrations of her love had been reoriented. The Pharisees, not so much. They wanted Jesus dead. If we are to be reoriented ourselves, we must first accept the reality of our brokenness and that we are lost. Repentance involves accepting our broken state, inviting Jesus to fill in the cracks and the holes, And this isn't on our terms. We don't get to call the shots. Our response is to be one of humility and surrender. However sexual disorientation shows up in our lives, we will get more of an eternal perspective regarding the way we limp. Because we may continue limping for the rest of our lives, but God may show us how he's using that in a redemptive way. And we will also find ourselves in this process of limping that we're joining a long line of saints throughout history who have been faced with navigating their own particular brokenness and pain. And so the question 
is really whether or not we will allow this brokenness and pain, this disorientation, to bring us to the foot of the cross. Whether we're willing to enter into the mystery and suffering, uh, the mystery that suffering and sanctification actually weave together. We also, each day, are faced with a choice. Each day, we are faced with a choice. It's the choice to surrender our sexuality to God or to choose self-fulfillment. So we choose to surrender or we choose the path of self-fulfillment. In their book, Good Faith, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons uh, have defined a new code that we live by, and they call it the code of self-fulfillment. And this stage of of self-fulfillment is the conversation, is the stage where this conversation of sexuality takes place. They observe, in the 20th century, more and more people began to see the Christian morality as standing in the way of a new moral code. The morality of self-fulfillment is that code. And they're throwing off the burdensome traditional mores and values, and people are beginning to imagine life without a bothersome God standing watch. The reality is, though, that this self-fulfillment just didn't show up. Self-fulfillment first entered the picture back at the time of creation. Adam and Eve, again, had that one simple command, do not eat any fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know how that worked out. When faced with that temptation to be like God, they bit, quite literally. And at its core, the code of self-fulfillment is ultimately about being our own gods. When we choose self-fulfillment, we are denying our disorientation and telling God, we're good, I got it all together. Or maybe we admit that we're disoriented, but we tell God, we say, you know what, God? I know I'm disoriented, but I can take care of it. I can do this. But that's a self-righteous posture. That's, that's us choosing to be our own self-salvation projects. That's a theology of works. So what does surrender to, surrendering to God look like? David Benner, in his book, Surrender to Love, states this. He says, the core of surrender is voluntarily giving up our will. And that stands in sharp contrast to the code of self-fulfillment. So what is it that actually motivates us to surrender this way? What motivates us to surrender? Well, the only reasonable motivation to surrender is love. And the only place where we can experience perfect, unconditional love is through Christ, through a relationship with him. Because surrender requires too much vulnerability to be a reasonable thing to do to anyone or anything that does not offer unconditional love to us. This invitation to surrender is also an invitation to relinquish control. Control of our lives, and that relinquishing of control also includes our sexuality, however it's reflected in us. Jesus invites us to give up our attempts to find fulfillment in life on our own. He invites us to surrender our disoriented sexuality. And in doing so, in that surrender, we'll actually find the life we were looking for all along. Benner writes, Paradoxically, the abundant life promised to us in Christ comes not from grasping, but from releasing. It comes not from striving to try harder and to do more, but from relinquishing. It comes not so much from taking, but from giving. Surrender is the foundational dynamic of Christian freedom. Surrender of my efforts to live outside of the grasp of God's love and to surrender to God's will and gracious spirit. 
So what does this surrender look like? Well, in one simple word, it looks like floating. Let me explain. When you're in a pool, when you're on a lake or in the ocean and the water's calm enough on the ocean, what does it take for you to float? You need to lay back, allow the water to bear your weight, and put your head back. Any striving, any work, any effort to try to float, and you're done. You will stop floating. So that picture of surrendering to love is essentially falling back into the arms of our Father, allowing Him to bear our weight. And so as we surrender our sexuality to God, we will experience a reorientation towards God's original intent for our sexuality. And this begins the process of transformation, the way of transforming how we see ourselves and how we experience our sexuality. So sixth and and the final main point here, as we are reoriented sexually, God will enable us to lead with love rather than let people know where we stand. We will lead with love rather than let people know where we stand. So let's return for a moment back to that passage I read from Luke. This passage where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and then this woman crashes their dinner party. How did Jesus respond to this woman who was known to be a sinner? How did he respond to other outcasts of his day? The tax collectors, the sinners, the widows, the sick, the lepers, the poor. Do we see Jesus leading with the law or by letting people know where he stood on significant moral issues of the day? You know, the tax collectors, not the tax collectors, but the Pharisees were completely put off with Jesus. They couldn't stand him. They couldn't tolerate him. They wanted him gone. Because as it says on Luke 15, verse 2, it says that Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. And the Pharisees could not believe that. They could not tolerate that. So why is it that people were drawn to Jesus? Well, Jesus welcomed people. He welcomed people without asking for a background check, without asking for references, or without vetting them first. Jesus leads with love. And when it comes to engaging in relationships with gay men and lesbian women and and those whose gender identity may be different from their gender at birth, too often Christians feel the need to lead with their theological positions regarding God's created intent. But when we do this, and when I say we, I include myself because I can still find myself falling into this trap. When we do that, it becomes more difficult for us to embrace the person, to love And in all likelihood, it would make it very difficult for the person to receive our embrace as well. As Christians, and I'm going to be pretty strong with this, there's a phrase that we must eliminate and eradicate from our our vocabulary or from the things we say regarding sexuality. The statement, love the sinner, hate the sin, must go. I've had conversations with individuals who struggle with their sexual identity. I've had conversations with people who identify as gay or lesbian. And so I've come to understand how they hear that statement. What is heard is, you hate me, period. And there is nothing redemptive or loving about that. I know a man who's married, but he still experiences attraction to the same gender. And I heard him state this a different way. He said, how about we love the sinner and I'll hate my sin? Now, what if our orientation was that way towards folks where we will love, but we're first and foremost going to hate the sin in our own lives and have that be our focus? 
This leading with love or leading with embrace theology is actually written about in Scripture. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That verse stops me in my tracks. Do you have the desire to speak into the lives of family and friends whose sexual expression falls outside of God's design of one woman and one man in marriage and the covenant of marriage? If so, then you need to take the time to build relationships. Relationships with all the love, pain, and angst that accompanies them. Radical engagement and loving of the other earns us the right to speak. We need to feel and not just think. Just as in Jesus' day, it wasn't enough to have the correct theology. Pharisees had the theology down, but they received Jesus' harshest words. It's about having a sincere, relational, love, connection, and relationship with people. And in the end, we who identify ourselves as Christ followers must remember how we got here. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul provides us a reminder about how we were reoriented. And it wasn't just our sexuality that was reoriented, but it was our entire being. And he encourages us to remember how others may be reoriented as well. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let me put it in a little bit more raw, earthy words uh, from the message. It says, you didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. So we began this morning with the story of a woman whose expression of love reflected radical life transformation. She was transformed as a result of her encounter with the one who led and who continues to lead with love. Jesus leads with embrace, not with his stance, not with theology. While the self-righteous Pharisees looked on in disgust, their disorientation remained. And in spite of their religious efforts, they stood unforgiven and flawed. But this woman, through no effort of her own, but from a willing surrender to the love of Jesus, stood forgiven and flawless. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that as you look upon us, as you see us, you recognize that, that we are lost apart from you, or we are lost apart from a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that Jesus came and lived the life on earth, the life that we could not live, a life of perfection, a life of sinlessness. And thank you for his willingness to go to the cross and to die, to die on our behalf so the may, way could be made for us to be redeemed, for us to be transformed, for us to be reoriented every cell of our body, every desire, every longing to bring that in line with what you have for us. And yet, Father, we recognize that in the midst of this, we still struggle. We still find ourselves not living according to that new reality and that new identity that's been established through Christ. 
and thank you that you're patient with us. Thank you that you're not looking at your watch and saying, I really thought you'd be farther by now. But thank you that you continue to extend and to pour out grace. And Father, may that be something that we're left with today. And may we know that even as we come to the cross, that you recreate us into new people and the flaws that are there are removed and taken from us for eternity. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.